I just want to say, I want to thank you all for your giving, which made possible to buy that guitar pedal, which made it possible for me to retune my guitar without anybody even noticing, which would have been a huge problem otherwise, since I'm supposed to lead the last song on guitar, so I don't know how that would have worked. So, thank you for your faithfulness in giving. All right, let's see if I can get myself refocused here. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 50. In these verses, the holy word of the Lord reads, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And then now we're here to our scripture that we'll be looking at this morning. Verse says here, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in was 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return home to my house, return to my house with which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Behold, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother And my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Would you do me a favor and pray with me and for me as we attempt to unpack God's word here today? Father, we just ask that through the preaching of the word today, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored and praised and worshiped, for you are worthy of all that and more. Father, we just ask that this text would be understood in a way that not just illuminates our minds, but our affections and our hearts. Lord, we just ask that you would remove blinders from our eyes, that we would see the areas where we fall short, that we would see that our righteousness is worthless compared to the righteousness of Christ. So, Father, we just ask that even in our obedience, and our perseverance, and our sanctification, that we would recognize all of that is your glory. 
All of that is your power at work in us. The same power that saved us is the same power that is saving us and will one day fully save us. Oh, Lord, we do long for that day. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day comes, Father, we ask that we would be found faithful, that we would not be faithless, that we would walk by faith and not by sight, and that we would do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit. Help us to walk in the Spirit, not the flesh. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to refusing to face the facts, humanity seems to have developed this into an art form. For example, in 1980, a man named Harry Randall Truman lived one mile from Mount St. Helens, and here he is. And when the evacuation order came to flee the area because the mountain was on the verge of exploding, as it was a volcano, Truman refused to go. That was for sissies, he said. Everyone's acting like wimps. The mountain's a molehill. It's a mile away. It's not going to hurt me. Well, it appears he was partly right, because when the volcano finally did explode weeks later, it instantly covered him in 800-degree liquid rock along with 1,000-pound boulders, which instantly killed him, resulting in, most likely, no pain at all, no hurt at all. And why? all because he refused to face the facts. Do you remember playing hide-and-go-seek with the kid across the street who would hide for hours and hours after everyone gave up looking for him? Some of you were that kid. Well, I'm going to try to say this name here. Hiru Onoda is that kid, and he is the world champion of hide-and-seek as he hid from the Allies after World War II ended for 29 years in the Philippine jungle. And why? Because his commanding officer had given him orders to stay behind and spy on the American troops until he heard from him otherwise. So he did just that, refusing to listen to anyone but his commanding officer about the state of the war. Those were his orders, and he refused to budge. And so the Japanese government, they sent out officials telling him, hey, it's over, don't worry. But he thought they were spies. They sent out his own family members, and he wasn't sure if they had turned, and so he refused to come back. And so finally, they sent his former commanding officer who went out himself and said, the war is over, you can come home now. And so 29 long years later, he finally did. And why? Because he refused to face the facts. When it comes to the expression closer than a brother, refusing to let go of that closeness can come to really cost you. For instance, living in 1874, the Bunker brothers, Chang and Aang, were Siamese twins who couldn't be separated without killing one of them because they shared a liver. But then, finally, when Chang died, Aang refused the pleas of his wife and doctor, insisting on staying with his brother until his own death. However, that ended up being a whole lot sooner than he expected, as him refusing the surgery led to his death just later that same day. And why? Because he refused to accept the facts. 
You know, when it comes to refusing to accept the facts, human history is full of ridiculous and numerous examples of this. Over and over again, people who wouldn't face reality and accept the truth, even when that truth was staring them straight in the face. It's remarkable. However, in Matthew chapter 12, we find the biggest example of all. And what is that? It's the example of the nation of Israel who refused to accept the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was their Messiah. Even though they were shown over and over again proof, conclusive proof, that Jesus was who he claimed to be, they refused to believe it. They refused to accept that he was the promised and foretold messianic king. Now, because they refused to face the facts, as we'll see in this text, this led to divine consequences of great proportion. It was all because of their unbelief. And make no mistake this morning, refusal to believe in Jesus as the Messiah does lead for everyone, not just the Israelite nation. It does lead to great, dangerous consequences. And so if we're going to avoid these consequences, we must come to understand what the nation of Israel did not come to understand, and it's three things, and here they are. To avoid the dangers of unbelief, we must come to understand, one, the blindness of unbelief, two, the danger of unbelief, and three, the blessing of belief. Let's look at this first one here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 12. We're going to look at verses 38 through 40 to begin. Beginning in verse 38, it reads, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. At this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he's made it more than clear who he is. And who he is is God's chosen servant, the divine messianic king. And yet they refuse to believe this in face of all the evidence that was staring them straight in the face. What kind of evidence are we talking about? This applies to us, right? Like, what evidence did they have that they were refusing? Because that evidence applies to us, right? Okay, how about this? Jesus fulfilled more than 100 prophecies that were foretold up to 1,500 years before his birth. And many of these prophecies that Christ fulfilled were things that he had no control over, like where he was born, things like that. Even the timing of when he was born. He healed the sick. Jesus cast out demons, and he even raised the dead. And if that wasn't remarkable enough, you look at Jesus' personal character, it was impeccable. He was completely sinless. And keep in mind, these religious leaders, they were following Jesus around, trying to get dirt on him. And at his trial, what did they have to do? They had to bring in false witnesses because they couldn't find any dirt on him. He had never sinned, not even once. And despite his impeccable nature, he had no problems dining with prostitutes, with tax collectors, and with sinners. Yes, he was firm about sin. He told the woman at the well to go and sin no more, but he was loving. He was gracious. He was merciful, and he was kind. 
Also, he taught the word of God in a way unlike any preacher ever up to that point. He unpacked the word of God in a way where they, the crowds at the end of the Sermon on Mount, they walked away shocked and amazed. They're like, who is this man who preaches with such authority? And all of these signs that Jesus showed, he didn't just show them once. No, no, no. He showed them numerous times in front of crowds. John says, if all the works of Jesus were recorded, even the world wouldn't hold all the books for all the things that he did. And another thing to keep in mind, Jesus did all of these things numerous times right there in front of his doubting enemies who stubbornly refused to believe in him. That's remarkable. They had the evidence. They ignored it. And so in verse 38, the Pharisees, what do they say to Jesus? Teacher, we, see a, we seek a sign from you. Oh, that sounds innocent. It's not. Not even a little bit innocent. They were like, they, see, the Pharisees, they weren't like that man who was crying out, Lord, I believe, but please help my unbelief. That's not them. That was not their heart because they weren't interested in the truth. Not at all. They had made up their minds and they refused to face the facts. They didn't want it to be true. See, they concluded what? We saw this two weeks ago with the unpardonable sin. They concluded, they're like, wow, we can't deny these miracles, but you know what? Jesus must be doing this by the power of Satan. That's what it is. Yeah, it, he's doing it by Satan's power. And so Jesus comes back and basically destroys their argument right there and shows how stupid the logic is behind it by saying, hey, if, if I'm of Satan and Satan's casting out Satan, that's a kingdom that's going to fall. That doesn't make any sense. And so, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus completely destroys their argument, shows how ridiculous their logic is, and what do they do? They don't take their words back, not at all. They double down. They triple down. Show us more proof, Jesus. If you just give us one really clear evidence, then, hey, I'll believe. Absolutely, I'll believe. I think of the situation with the rich man and Lazarus. When they both died, Lazarus went to paradise, and the rich man went to, went to torment. And he says, would you send someone after my brothers, to tell them of this place so they won't come. And what is the response from Abraham? Even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. That is true. Think of the millennial reign of Christ. This is a thousand-year reign where Christ rules on earth. It's said in that day, if somebody dies at the age of 100, it will be as if a child died. And at the end of that thousand-year reign where it's glorious and it's so close to the Garden of Eden in terms of perfection and righteousness, Satan's bound. What happens? There's a rebellion. Humanity rises up again and says, we will not have this king reign over us. I think of Pharaoh. The kids are looking at Pharaoh right now in the, in the children's Sunday school class lately with the, with the signs from Moses and Aaron. What did Pharaoh do? These great signs and wonders before him, and he's just like, nope, hardened his heart. It's remarkable, the depravity of the human heart. It is stubborn and in fact, we could call it willful unbelief. Now, before we go any further here, let me ask you a question. Is faith blind? Is that what Christianity is about? Hey, you just got to believe. It doesn't matter if, if the, it doesn't add up. You, you got to just believe, and that's great. Let me put it this way. When it comes to believing in God, are we supposed to just grit our teeth and believe, despite the lack of evidence, as if that's some virtuous thing before God? Is that how Christianity works? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And why not? Because Christianity is a historic religion. 
It is. It's, it's rooted and grounded in history. It's grounded in truth, in facts. Yes, it's grounded in faith, but it's not grounded in blind faith. We don't believe in spite of the evidences, church. We believe because of the evidences. We believe because Christianity has truth on its side, and so that's why we believe Christianity's claims. And if you don't think that, if you think, well, I just believe because faith, I got faith, that's all I need, you're in some trouble. Because when a smart skeptic comes along, you're going to have no answers. He's going to rock your faith. She's going to destroy what you thought was grounded. You'll be easy prey. And if you base your trust in Jesus on blind faith and not the facts, you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine, as Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians. So the question is, why do we believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God? Well, there's more answers to that than we have time to unpack this morning, but it's ultimately this. Here's why. It's because we've taken the sufficient evidence that God has provided that bear in mind, we'll, we'll be accountable to. And instead of stubbornly refusing to face the facts, we look at said evidence and we draw the right conclusions. It's simply that. It's simply that. That's all it is. So what's the difference then between that and what the Pharisees are doing here? Why does Jesus look at them and be like, you're seeking signs and wonders? Uh-uh. That's an adulterous generation approach. Why does he respond that way? It's because they're not looking for truth. They're not trying to face the facts here. Instead, they're looking to justify their unbelief. Why? Because they don't want Jesus to be the king. We will not have this man reign over us was the song of their heart. And why was that the case? Because they didn't like what he was about. He didn't mesh with their lives. He didn't mesh with their plans. They had, they had, a, they had like a 50-year plan in place for their life, and it was conflicting with all of that. He interrupts things. How does he interrupt things? Well, Jesus says things like this. Unless your righteousness is even greater than the greatest among you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says things like, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And then he goes even further and he says, unless your love for me is so great that by comparison to your greatest love, like with your mother or father, you must hate them by comparison. Does that sound like an easy saying? No, not at all. He tells us that we must take up our cross and follow him. That's what it takes to be a follower and disciple of Christ. Let me ask you, church, does this sound like our best life now? No. Does this sound like the American dream realized? We, you know, our perfect job, our perfect family, everything as we ever wanted. Is that what it sounds like? Not at all. A cross doesn't sound very comfortable. I don't know if I want that. That's what our heart says. And because many don't want that, instead of facing the facts that Jesus is the living Son of God who rose from the dead, they find excuses to avoid facing those facts. And one of those facts is the greatest of all, which is Jesus' death and resurrection, which is the greatest sign of them all. Look at verses 39 and 40. What's Jesus talking about here? 
The sign of Jonah. What's this about? Okay, remember that Jonah, he was an Old Testament prophet who ended up staying at a little bed and breakfast called the fish's belly for three days because why? He refused to listen to God. He was stubborn about it. He stubbornly refused to go and preach to the lost and Gentile nation, which were the Ninevites. And so, after his little stay at this bed and breakfast, he decides to then finally go and realize God means business, and so he reluctantly goes and preaches to the Ninevites. And so, with this Old Testament picture in mind, Jesus is telling us, he's saying, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, it's not a whale, by the way, anyways, so too will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, which is precisely what happened. And now, this is something we're about to celebrate. This, the Son of Man being in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and then coming forth from it. It's called Easter. It's about two weeks away, in case you don't know. But just like Jonah didn't stay in the belly of the fish and rose out of it, so too did Jesus rise out of that tomb three days later. That's Jesus' point. This is the ultimate sign of them all, he says. He says, no sign will be given to you except the greatest sign of all, basically. I mean, that's a pretty great sign, Now, this is just kind of a side note here. We don't have time to get into it, but if you're confused by the math here with three days and three nights going from Good Friday to Sunday, well, you'll have to stick around for our Fellowship and Focus Hour where we discuss this because it's not a contradiction, but we'll discuss it there. Now, here's the point, though. We serve a risen Savior. He's not dead. He is alive. And we have all the proof that we could ever need and then some for it. The empty tomb is staring us still to this day right in the face. Are you unconvinced? If so, please explain to me the empty tomb. People have tried. They've come up with theories. Well, somebody stole the body. Uh, You know, maybe Jesus wasn't fully dead, and he was basically in this coma kind of thing, and then he woke up and got out of there. And if that's your argument, you've never seen or understand, well, obviously nobody here has, but you don't understand a Roman crucifixion. You don't walk that thing off, okay? He was dead. Explain to me also then the rise of the early church. I mean, this would be like somebody going to the Middle East today who is a woman and going to Muslims and saying, I'm God. Like, think of something completely ridiculous that is not plausible. That's what it was like for Jesus to go amongst the Israelite nations and say, I am God in flesh. That was blasphemy in their minds. There's a, it, it's remarkable that he made it three years without being killed, let alone three minutes. Explain to me why, then, 11 of the 12 disciples were so convinced that they saw the risen Christ that they were willing to die terrible deaths. Explain that. It doesn't make sense unless we come to the right conclusion, which is what? Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus rose from the dead, and it was so remarkable that we based our entire human calendar around it. AD, BC, right? Like, this is the only plausible conclusion. Well, what about modern-day suicide bombers? How is that any different than the disciples? That's a good question. Here's the difference. Modern-day suicide bombers, are, they're not in a position to know whether their beliefs are accurate. They are just walking blindly by faith. Jesus and his disciples, they were in a position to know themselves if Jesus rose from the dead. So that is apples to oranges. 
That's completely different. They were in a position to truly know whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. The early Christians in the first century, they had a hard go of things. They were in a position to know. Jesus appeared not just to his 12 disciples, he, or 11 at that point, but he did not just appear to his disciples, he appeared to multiple people, hundreds of people at times. The only explanation that makes sense here is that they saw the risen Christ. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a figment of their imagination. They saw and touched the resurrected Jesus. They ate with him. Now, the only explanation that makes any sense here is that Christ is a son of God who died and rose again. And because the disciples truly saw this risen against Christ, risen again Christ, they then knew themselves that no grave could ever hold their body down. And that is why they were willing to face famine, torture, and even the sword for the sake of Christ's gospel message. That was why. So this fact, coupled with another fact, which is the perfectly inspired word of God, That is a remarkable argument we don't have time to jump into this morning. But these two things alone, and there's more than this, leave us without excuse that we must face the facts. But if we refuse to face the facts and demand more and more evidence saying, ah, you know, just one more, just just maybe maybe just one more, and start laying fleeces out for God, it's going to lead to the same danger that the nation of Israel ultimately faced, which leads us to our second point. To avoid the dangers of unbelief, we must understand the blindness of unbelief, but secondly, the danger of unbelief. Look at verses 41 through 42. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In these verses here, verses 41 through 45, we didn't read all those yet, but Jesus is pointing out to us the dangers of unbelief. And this is not just like some, ah, well, you know, maybe I'll miss out on some blessings. No, this is serious, serious stuff. Unbelief is actually the most deadly condition for the human that is possible. Why? Because unbelief leads to the wrath of God. It leads to judgment. And so Jesus is pointing out out here to us how blind Israel's unbelief truly was, and he's showing us that by a way of a few illustrations. Well, the first one, he's going back to Jonah again, okay? He's going back to the illustration of Jonah, and remember, what, what about Jonah? Well, he was a grumpy preacher. He didn't want to go preach to these people. I want to preach to you on Sundays. He didn't want to, not even a little bit. And at the end of his preaching, it said he went up on the hill and he watched. He's like, oh, please rain fire on them. Pull a Sodom and Gomorrah on these guys. That's what he wanted. And so yet, in spite of what I imagine, I mean, I don't know this, but I imagine this to be probably one of the worst sermons on the planet. Right? He didn't want them to believe. Can you imagine that? Uh, He didn't want them to believe and repent, which is just another reminder, the next time you hear a not-so-great sermon, uh, so long as it's biblically accurate, Remember, hey, you know what? At least it's not grumpy Jonah, you know? So 
whatever that's worth. Okay, so the first illustration, it's a bunch of pagan Gentile unbelievers who repented and trusted in Yahweh in spite of the grumpy preacher. Pretty remarkable, right? He's commending them and saying, hey, look at this. They had this and they believed. What's your excuse? Second off is the illustration here. The second one is the Queen of Sheba, which you can read about in 1 Kings chapter 10. Well, what did the Queen of Sheba do? She traveled a very long distance to hear the wisdom of King Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live. Remember when Solomon, he had a dream before the Lord, and he said, what do you want, Solomon? And he was, had the brains to know not to ask for riches. He asked for wisdom, and then he ended up becoming the richest man ever through that request. So she realized how wise Solomon was, realized that that wisdom was from God, and so she traveled a solid distance to hear of said wisdom, and she did so at a time where the gas prices weren't any better than today. So what's the point, though, of these two illustrations? What's the point? The point is this. The Ninevites trusted in God when all they had was a grumpy, reluctant prophet. The queen of Sheba trusted in God when all she had was the wisdom of Solomon. And if they were able to trust in God based upon just that, then what is your excuse? We got a whole lot more than that, way more than that. See, here was Israel, right? They're living at a time that the prophets just dreamed of. They would have loved to see. After years of silence from God, the Messiah had finally come. He was doing what? He was healing the sick. He was raising the dead. He was casting out demons over and over and over again. And unlike Jonah, he preached an infinitely greater message that no one has ever come close to. Unlike Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live, Jesus was the very wisdom of God, made flesh. And yet, in spite of all this, stubborn, Unbelieving Israel refused to face the facts. They refused to believe. They refused to accept the truth, which is Jesus was who he claimed to be. Yeah, they liked his miracles when it suited them. They weren't going to complain about that. I mean, who would, right? But when it came to trusting in him, to bowing their knee before him as Lord and Savior, hold on a second, that was too much. I was okay with you making my life better. That was fine. I'll add Jesus. I'll do that. It makes my life better, but I'm not going to bow to him. See the problem here? Because of everything that Christ did when he came, the point Jesus is making in this text is that they were actually in a greater danger because of that blessing they had. Yeah, Christ healed their sick. He cast out demons. But having tasted the heavenly gifts, as Hebrews talks about, having refused to drink from Christ's well to get the water that makes them never thirst again, they actually ended up in a worse place. They were only temporary, temporarily improved. Their situation only got better for a little while, and then it became so much worse, which is the point then of Jesus' third analogy. Look at verses 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through a waterless place seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state is worse than the first. 
so also will it be with this evil generation. Oh boy, so many things to say here in so little time. This is what happens when we pull off four times as many verses as we normally do on a Sunday. All right, first off, this passage isn't teaching about how to do exorcisms, all right? That's not the point. It's not talking about exorcisms, all right? He's simply using a demonic parable to teach us not about exorcism and demons, but the dangers of unbelief, okay? We got that? So don't make this weird. That's not what it's about. Jesus is teaching us about the dangers of unbelief. So far in Jesus' earthly ministry, what had he been doing? Purging the nation of a whole lot of demons. I mean, there was mucho demonic activity going on. And so he went around purging the nation of those demons, which was a good thing. I mean, think about it. Having one demon or no demon, which one's better? No demon, right? I mean, that goes without saying. But as Jesus' illustration shows us, if that person remains empty... Okay? If they stay in that empty state, they're setting themselves up for an even worse situation. That's his point. Because what's going to happen is that demon's going to come back with his seven buddies, and they're going to find the house swept and in order, and they're going to be like, sweet, thanks for cleaning it up. We'll come right on in here and make ourselves at home. And then that person is in a much, much worse state. And so, church, do you see the problem with mere religious reformation apart from spiritual heart change. You're just sweeping things up, getting the demon out to make room for a host of, a legion of them to come in. All moralism does is clean ourselves up to make more demons come in when they invade. And so like Israel, if we aren't careful, we can approach Christ in the same way. Hear me when I say this. We can approach him in the same way where it just merely removes one of our demons to make way for seven others. Maybe you grew up in Christianity or not. I don't know, whatever, either way. The point is, maybe you've been helped greatly by Christianity in the past, okay? Maybe you tamed that temper, which you just couldn't quite control, and you've got some, you know, you got a grip on it a little bit. Uh, Maybe you got some Christian marriage counseling, and finally you got your marriage in semi-working order. Maybe you kicked that addiction through Christian counseling or whatever. Whatever it was, without a doubt, Christianity helped you get that demon out, which, as we just talked about, is a good thing. But here's the problem with that and why it's not a good thing if that's all it is. Maybe this is something you haven't realized yet. Sure, you got the demon out, but your house is still empty. It's cleaned, it's swept, it's put in order. Sure, things look much more tidy than they were, but you're still empty. What does that mean to be cleaned, tidied up, but empty? Put it simply, it means you've never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because like the nation of Israel, you've never come to accept Christ on his terms. You're still approaching Jesus on your own terms. Sure, you'll take some Jesus if it'll help your marriage. Yeah, that sounds great. Who wouldn't want some of those miraculous changes in your life? Sure, you'll take Jesus if he helps you with that addiction. Why not? Yeah. If he gives you some happiness, absolutely I'll take Jesus. That's as far as it ever goes. Sure, you've laid on Christ's couch for his wonderful counsel, because he is the wonderful counselor, as Isaiah speaks of. But who are you trying to kid? 
You've never surrendered and bowed the knee before the throne, making King Jesus who he actually is, which is Lord and King. And the reason you've never done that is because you've never approached Jesus on his own terms. You've approached him on your own. And what are his terms? John the Baptist preached it. He preached it over and over. We've seen this several times in Matthew. His terms are what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not add me to your life and I'll make it better. It's repent. Turn from your sins or you will be damned to an eternal hell. No, that's probably not very popular and culturally appropriate right now, but that's the reality. That's what Jesus' message was. And so until you come to truly repent before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and not just repent of the bad things you've done, hear me when I say this, not just repent of the bad things you've done, but repent of the good things you've done that were attached with selfish motives, sinful motives, you're just cleaning out one demon while leaving yourself exposed to the legion of demons to come on in and set up shop. You can't just clean up the house. You have to invite in the right roommate who's tough enough to keep out the legion of demons. And as we saw before, Jesus is tough enough. He, he commands Satan with a word and they're gone. There is only one who can fill our hearts and satisfy our souls. It's Jesus Christ, which is why he says, Come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As we saw from Matthew 11, only Jesus' yoke brings rest to our souls. For it is a yoke, which is a burden, okay? It's a burden that he says is heavy and light. And so all of our efforts at carrying the burden ourselves by cleaning the house of our soul and keeping it empty from sin, it's heavy. It's wearisome. It's depressing if we're honest about it, right? And so maybe you haven't had the demonic horde show back up quite yet and wreak havoc on your life, but hear me, just wait a little bit. It inevitably will happen. It absolutely will happen. And when that happens, like unfaithful, unbelieving Israel, you're going to be in a worse state than you were at the start. That is, unless you go on to find the blessings of belief, which lead to our final point. To avoid the dangers of unbelief, we must understand the blindness of unbelief, the danger of unbelief, but third and finally, the blessing of belief. Look at verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In these verses, Jesus is telling us something that's pretty straightforward. He's telling us that those who have come to faith are sons and daughters of God. They're a part of the family of God. And so the question is, how do we know if we've come to permanent Holy Spirit and dwelt saving faith, did you catch that? Permanent Holy Spirit and dwelt saving faith versus temporary demon-removed helping faith. 
Helping faith versus saving faith. How do we know which one we've got? Look at verse 30. Here it is again. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's not enough to taste the good things of the kingdom, church. It's not enough to be freed from a sin, even a great one, or a vice, through kingdom proximity. You have to actually enter the kingdom and experience the full power of it. And you do so by faith. And when you do that, do you know what happens? You're going to find something remarkable. You're going to find the all-powerful spirit of God within you that is at work in you, willing you to work in ways you never knew were possible. You will find yourself doing the will of the Father, which before was a heavy burden you could never even come close to lifting. But now, by faith, as a child of the King, you have been given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, as Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 1. We're sons and daughters of the King of Kings and host of and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if that's the case, don't you think he is going to put everything in our hands that we need to do what he's called us to? Of course he would. We have everything we could possibly need for life and godliness, as Scripture tells us. We have full access to the throne room of the Father, where we can run before him as a son or daughter of the King. And he'll not only hear our requests, but he'll answer them if they are what is truly good for us. Yes, of course, you're still going to sin. No questions about it. You're going to sin, even if you're a son and daughter of the king. If you think otherwise, you're going to be greatly disappointed when you do sin. You're going to sin until the day you are given a new sinless body. But until that day, because the Spirit of God lives within you, you're going to fight your sin. You're going to go to war against your sin and kill it. And it's not because you're trying to clean things up on the inside so that God will finally accept you. Oh, no, 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 that's not going to work. That's already been done. And it's been done how? By the blood of Christ, who washes us white as snow. And so because you have the Spirit of God now within you, who can fend off all those demonic hordes, you can now finally do the will of God. How do we get the only Spirit that is powerful enough to do this? It's very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By repenting of our sin and turning to the sinless Savior who makes sinners sinless, that's how. And once that happens, and only once that happens, can we truly do the will of our Father in heaven. So the question is, how about you? Can you confidently say that you're a child of the King? Can you look at your life and say, yeah, you know what, by God's grace, I would say, you know, in my imperfection, I am doing God's will. By his glorious power. If not... Have you stopped to consider something very, very important that Israel did not? Have you only come to helping faith and not saving faith? This past week, I came across a quote by a theologian named A.W. Tozer on faith, and I thought it was quite remarkable, so I wanted to share it with you. Here's what it is. When it comes to this concept, he writes, Faith is the least self-regarding of virtues. 
It is by its very nature scarcely conscious of its own existence. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks away to the perfect one. Well, he looks at Christ, the very thing he has so long been trying to do will be getting done within him. Are you tinkering about with your soul, trying to clean and tidy it up through religious and moralistic self-effort? Or are you looking to the author and finisher of our faith, which alone can enable us to do the will of the Father? And when we do this, and only when we do this, do we please him and become enabled to do his will more than we ever could with all of our self-righteous tidying up of things. So, are you tired? Are you heavy laden? If so, face the facts. Stop playing hide-and-seek with God by trying to hide your sin with your religious and moralistic self-effort. Face the facts. Quit refusing the radical amputation that you need from your sin that is killing you. And actually, I would add to that, you need a radical amputation from your own self-works-based righteousness. That's killing you. And if you don't, hear me when I say this, either at your death or Christ's second coming, you will face the danger of your unbelief in the form of the all-powerful wrath of Almighty God. I know it might seem like it's miles and miles away, but face the facts. It is coming very soon. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to repay everyone according to what he has done, Christ writes in the book of Revelation, in the closing verses in it. Are you ready for that day? Are you a child of the king? If so, and you are, are you doing his will? Either way, if you are or aren't, the solution is the same. Repent, And by faith, look to Christ Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I just pray for the one here who only has helping faith. They've never come to Christ as King and Lord. They're approaching him as a comforter, as a counselor. So, Father, I just pray that by your grace that they would give up on that foolish effort and realize the great peril that lays before them. Father, I just pray for the Christian here today who's gotten their eyes off of the righteousness of Christ onto their own tidying up of things. Lord, we can't do that on our own. So, Father, I just ask that by your grace that your children today would keep our gaze fixed on Christ as Peter needed to do when he walked on the water and saw the waves breaking around him. So help us not to get our eyes off Christ. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And help us to do so for your great glory and the good of your people. And we will praise you for it. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.